Hebrews chapter 8, let's begin in verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would be a, not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to take, make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, insomuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now, that, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the preeminence of your word and how you use it in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And that's what we want this morning. We want to become more like you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand these verses and how they apply to our lives. We're grateful that your Holy Spirit is so, he's so sufficient to make application uniquely to each one of our hearts. We pray that you would use these verses, Lord, to that end. Set this time aside. Lord, it's holy. This whole entire time has been holy. So we pray, Lord, that you'd set this time of, of sitting at your feet and learning from your word. We pray that you'd set that aside for your glory in our lives and through our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today we're going to look at the superiority of the new covenant. There was an old covenant that God made with Israel, which was conditional, and it's usually described as, uh, if you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this will happen, and so forth. Very conditional. There's also a new covenant, uh, which God made with Israel, and because we're Gentiles, those of us that are Gentiles, we've been grafted in, and so we get the benefits of that covenant. It's, of course, to us as well, because God had in, in mind that to save all of mankind, that the promise to Abraham was that, that his descendants would be multiplied and multiplied and that God would be seen and known in this world through Abraham. And because we're sons of faith and we're sons of Abraham as well. So these entire covenants uh, that we've seen uh, up to this point, you know, in the Old Testament and so forth, they're very important. And the New Testament describes a whole entire new covenant and 
what this writer is trying to get across to these Jewish believers is that what you're about to exchange <laughs> something, you're about to exchange something inferior or uh, for, or something superior for something inferior. And, and he's been talking about that all the way through with all these other things. And we could, you, probably could memorize, you probably memorized and can go down the list with me all the things that Jesus is greater than. And so uh, we've seen that over and over again. Now this new covenant contrasted with the old covenant uh, is very um, profound because it's, it's entirely different in, in, in so many different ways. And that's what the writer's really getting at, because the Old Covenant was, was written you know, as, the, as the letter of the law, in ink, so to speak. And then the New Covenant is written in the Spirit, or with the Spirit. The, the Old Covenant was written on tablets of stone. In the New Covenant, he writes this, this New Covenant, or the laws, his laws, uh, on the tablets of our hearts and so forth. We're told that... that the, the, the old covenant has kind of the, the ministry of death in the sense that we can't live up to the fullness of the law. So it, can, it condemns us in a sense where we, uh, you know, have our lives measured up against that and we see that we fall short, thus needing to have a savior. But the new covenant shows a ministry of the spirit. And there's so many different things. You do a study on contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. It's, the new covenant is so much better. He even calls it better in our passage. But before we get into our verses this morning, I want to look at the new covenant contrasted with the old covenant from another passage that's complementary. And I want us to hold our place here. And if you would just turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul says by the Spirit related to these things. So if you hold your place there, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says in verse 7, but if, this, but if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even that was made glorious, or even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels, talking about the new covenant. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. But the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Talking about the Jews. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit or just as, yeah, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now you can turn back to Hebrews chapter 8. In that passage in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, 
It gives a great description of what used to be in terms of the old covenant and the glory. And it had a glory, had a very significant glory. But he's talking about in that passage the, the reality that because of the Spirit's ministry in our lives, he transforms us from one a stage of spiritual development and growth to another and makes us more and more like Christ. And he does that through the Spirit because we've appropriated or received the ministry of the new covenant. And we have the ministry of the Spirit in our lives, the law of the Spirit. And so it's a beautiful thing. And it's, it's worthy of greater study. And we don't have time for it uh, here at all. But that this Old Testament covenant, this new, this old covenant compared to the new covenant, so much different, and the new covenant is so much better. And, and so he begins in verse 8, or verse 1 rather, of chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. That's encouraging, you know, someone gets to, a preacher gets to a main point. That's <laughs> always refreshing. Uh, and he says, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And notice he says, we have. That's present tense there in the verse. Did you see that? He says, we currently have. That's present tense. We currently have a high priest. And he says, we have him. He's ours. We have taken, we've claimed him. You ever had people, you know, claim you? You know, it doesn't happen that often, but in, you know, when you're a kid, people, yeah, I'm, I want him for my team, or I, he's with me, or so, and so forth. But with, with the, the Savior and with the great high priest that we get to worship and, and, and serve, he is our, he, we possess him. He is our high priest, and he currently is our high priest. And I want you to notice something in verse 1. It says that, and we're told that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And this may not seem like a big deal, but to the Jewish mind, remember, he's writing to these Jewish believers they're very familiar with the function of what, go, you know, what goes on in the temple. It was happening at that point in their, in their lives. The temple was still going in Jerusalem there. And they're very familiar with the fact that there were a lot of pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and in the temple, but there were no chairs. It was, very, it was a very busy place. No, no place to sit down. And I think it, it kind of points to the fact that in that old covenant, when, when you have it kind of based on your obedience... And it kind of depends on your faithfulness that if you're trying to be made perfect by the works of the law, you could never, ever cease that because you will never be good enough. We will never, ever be good enough to be made into a right standing with God apart from Jesus' blood being put to our account. And so this picture of the the Old Testament and this Old Covenant where the, the priests are serving and so forth, the work was never done because we could never ever reach that standard of perfection under the Old Covenant. It's a great picture. So this whole imagery of the high priest sitting would be new to them. That wouldn't be something that they would have a reference point for in their mind. Oh, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I remember high priests uh, sitting down. They're what? And those two things don't go together. One of these things is not like the other. It's kind of like Sesame Street a little bit, except kind of the opposite. I won't bring in Elmo into the discussion. That's, that wouldn't be proper. Um, but they, they could not possibly imagine this high priest being able to sit down. And so he sat. And the only other time we're, to my knowledge, told that Jesus isn't sitting in heaven is when, when Stephen was martyred. And Stephen said, look, the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. And so that got his attention, the first martyr. 
And he stood up and he acknowledged Stephen. He ministered to Stephen as his high priest in the moment, recognizing the sacrifice he was making. I'm standing with you. I'm supporting you. And God gave uh, Stephen a supernatural capacity to be able to gaze into heaven and be able to see what was going on there to encourage him in that moment. It was so real to Stephen, he assumed everyone else could see too. I don't know if they could. It'd be pretty funny if they did. Like, oh, well, maybe we're making a mistake here uh, with this. But, you know, it was so real to him. So this high priest seated, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens is a huge, huge uh, thing. And then he's, he's, he's continues in verse 2 with saying that he's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now notice the capital M there, minister. The word minister in the New Testament normally means servant. That's what it means. We've changed it into something entirely different in our culture. But this word here is a different word. It's a word from the word from which we get our word liturgy. It's, it's talking about someone that serves in a, in a kind of a religious capacity as a, an official office in the things of the Lord or like a priestly office. That's, that's the Greek word that's, that's used here. And it's speaking of Christ's present ministry as high priest. So often we think about the Gospels and what Jesus did for us and his public ministry and so forth. But not often do we think about his present ministry. He has a very uh, active, present ministry going on, and that's the ministry of being our high priest there. And so it, that's, that's what he's doing. He's, he's taking care of the sanctuary in that sense where he's being a minister, he's doing his duty, so to speak, and he's, it says there in the middle of verse 2 that he does that in the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So this is the t- speaking of heaven, of course. And we've, we've referenced this up to this point, um, talking about that the tabernacle and the temple was a model. They were models of, of heaven. And, and, and God gave Moses very specific instructions. And he's going to reference it a little bit later related to uh, how it should be built. And it, and it was supposed to be built exactly how God laid out for it to be built for very specific reasons. It was all pointing to something. It was all pointing to the fulfillment that we get to enjoy related to our high priest and so forth. And he says in verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. So if you're going to be a high priest, you have, you have to have something to offer. Half of your role as, as, a, as a priest would be to represent the people to God. And the other half was representing God to the people. And it all was uh, encompassed in the function of the high priest or a priest, uh, even, you know, a lower priest and so forth. So he's saying what Jesus is, as high priest is offering something on our behalf right now. Just because he's not offering the same type of offerings that the Levitical priests at that time were offering, it doesn't mean that he was offering any uh, or engaged in the offering of gifts any less. And that, that's what he's zeroing in on. So he's offering gifts right now. And what is he offering? What gifts? Prayers. Intercession. Again, Jesus is currently our high priest. And he's, we've already looked at the verse where he's, he's saying that, that he always makes intercession for us. And that means that he is currently our mediator. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so we've already covered that he gives us access to the throne of grace, being our high priest, already passed through the heavens 
giving us access. Of course, the, the rent uh, temple veil communicated that we have total access. He rent that from top to bottom, showing that God initiated it, and it was God's idea, and so forth. And so now he's getting even more specific. He represents uh, us offering up gifts or offerings, in a sense, of prayers and intercessions on our behalf to the Father. That's his high priestly ministry as a minister of the true sanctuary of which the tabernacle and the temple were a copy. And so that's, that's kind of what he's getting at there uh, in verse 3. But then he continues in verse 4. He says, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. So the writer's saying, you're right. He, can't, he couldn't be a high priest in the sense of how high priests are functioning in, at that time because he wasn't in, uh, you know, from the tribe of Levi's, from the tribe of Judah. I and mean, that's why he got into the whole priesthood of Melchizedek, as we've seen the last couple of weeks. So he says, that's right. He, he couldn't, he, he wouldn't, because he is the one that inspired the law. And in the law, it says there's very specific requirements for the, the priests, the Levitical priests, to function in the way that they function. So he said if he, were, he wouldn't be a priest if he were here, but he's, he's engaged in a priesthood that is not on this uh, earth. Now, this also uh, it's noteworthy because it also gives us a clue that these that the temple was going in full swing at this moment when he wrote this. Because notice he says, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. He's talking about at that moment. Gifts, the priests were still functioning in the sanctuary, I mean in the temple, and they were still offering gifts at this point. As I said from the beginning, this is like three or four years from the destruction of the temple under the, the Roman uh, general Titus there. So that gives us confirmation of that. And then he uses the present tense also in verse 5. He says, who serve, that's present tense, who are currently serving the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now I want to call your attention to three words in verse 5. And they're the words uh, copy, shadow, and pattern there. You see the word copy there at the beginning of verse 5, and then shadows right after that. And then at the end of verse 5, it says that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And these Greek words are engineering terms. They're very specific related to when you make something. You, make a, you have something that has a, a blueprint from, that you're making from a blueprint. You know, the word schema there for copy is the word from which we get our word schematic. And, and so he's saying you, you have to follow carefully after the pattern that, that I've laid out for you. And that's what Moses did. And he's saying that the Lord Jesus is ministering in the capital S sanctuary the one that Moses was told to make uh, copies of related to the temple. And, and so he quotes there Exodus chapter uh, 25 verse 40 because it was a replica of heaven. And that's what Moses was told. And, and he gave 15 chapters or so there explaining in detail how he was supposed to make the tabernacle and everything in the tabernacle so it would be a copy or a pattern of the real thing. And what's really cool, and we'll get there when we get to Revelation, is that in chapter 4, 
you know, where I believe it's referring to the rapture of the church there, and then immediately he's, he's caught up into, the, into heaven by the, by the Spirit there, and it gives us a little peek. It's like the, the throne room doors open a little bit, and we get to go into the throne room there, and we get to see. And when you study through that, you get to see so many similarities between the tabernacle slash temple and heaven, and, and you get to see the confirmation that Moses really did build it according to uh, the real sanctuary. So that's, a, that's something that we can look forward to. Verse 6, he tells us, but now he, uh, he has obtained a more excellent ministry, insomuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now, there's our word better that we've been talking about. The theme of the book is Jesus is better. And we've seen this word repeated over and over. And he says it twice in verse 6. Did you see that? That he, he gives us a better, he's a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. We're told that Jesus's ministry here is more excellent than these other high priests could have ever been. And they respected their high priests. These many, there are many good high priests in, in, in Israel's history, but none of them even compared to the Lord Jesus. And he says, but now he has obtained, that is Jesus, a more excellent ministry because he's mediator. Notice the capital M there. Capital M, mediator of a better covenant because he has established them on better promises. Because God has promised eternal life. He's promised to, to come into our lives when we surrender our lives to him and, and we're born again and we're born spiritually. He says if you just believe and trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, he will come into our lives. He will change us from the inside out. He will give us his Holy Spirit. You know, these Jewish believers in their history, in, in Jews and in, in the Israel's history, could never dream of having the Holy of Holies be inside of them. I mean, to us, we just pass over that. But to them and the Jewish mind, thinking of the fact that the, their high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies, that's the only man that could ever go in, and that once a year, and that after sacrifices were made for his sins, to think that we could be the Holy of Holies and have God's Spirit live inside of us, that would just be like a bomb going off into their, in their minds. Wow. And God promised that. And so much of what's wrapped, or wrapped in the New Testament or communicated in the New Testament is the fact that he gives us his spirit. And that's what he's really getting at, the ministry of the spirit in our lives. And that is so precious. And it's, it's based on promises that the old covenant could never accomplish, could never provide. But the new covenant does. And so that's a huge encouragement for us. We, we, we are in a better covenant. We can't just translate everything over from the Old Testament into the New Testament. There are things that were specifically for the Jews. The Old Testament was specifically written for certain purposes, and sometimes those don't carry over into the New Testament. It's not part of our covenant. But in the New Covenant, it's all for us. And there are some things that are repeated in the New Covenant that were, that were stated in the Old Covenant and so forth, but so much of it is all brand new. That's what Jesus' ministry represented, new wine, you know, new wineskins, a whole new way of approaching God, a whole new way of God dealing with man, and, and it's just a beautiful thing. So we are part of a better covenant established on better promises. And then he goes further in verse 7. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless then no place would have been sought for a second. And that's a good point. 
Why would God mention a second covenant if the first covenant was flawless? Well, the obvious answer is he wouldn't. He wouldn't have promised a second covenant if, or a new covenant if the first one was all sufficient for everything that God wanted to do in and through our lives. Jeremiah chapter 31, he's going to be quoting from there, the next few verses up to verse 12. That was written hundreds and hundreds of years after the law was given. And in that, uh, in that set of verses, and we're going to look at in a second, uh, it gives very specific information related to a brand new covenant that God would, would make with his people. And it's a beautiful thing. And, and as we read these verses, I want you to be looking for two words repeating over and over again. And it's the words, I will. Very important for us to see. In, in Jeremiah, he, 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 God gives all these things that he's going to do with this, related to this new covenant, and he describes it with two words over and over again, six times, I will, I will, I will. So look for it as we read. Let's read in verse 8. He says, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now notice in the middle of verse 9, he says, because they did not continue. See, it was conditional on them. It was conditional on their performance. And that's different than the new covenant, and we'll get to that in a moment. But he says in the beginning of verse 8, because finding fault with them. Who's them? The Israelites, the Jews, because they couldn't keep the old covenant. They couldn't keep the law of Moses. All 613 of those laws demonstrate that we need a savior. We can't live up to that standard. Paul talked about the, you know, just how difficult it would be to try to be justified or, or, or acquitted by, by using the, the law of Moses, you could never do it. And so they failed. And God said, because they did not continue, I disregarded them. And that's why he's promising a new covenant. Now he's going to list, as we keep reading from Jeremiah there, he's going to list three benefits of the new covenant. And of course, there's many more, but, he's, but we want to note those in verses 10 through 12. The first one is he's going to give us an internal law. He says in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make, notice, I will, did I miss the I will there in the other verses? I think I did. Just, it's just me. Just don't worry about it. I'm just looking at something. I will, yeah. He already said it there in verse 8. When I will make a covenant. So he's already started. I was going to mark every one of them, but so goes my plans. So well, you just have to watch out for him. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So I got most of the I wills, not all of them. So, you know, we're not perfect. So in the old covenant, it, again, it was based on external uh, holiness in a sense. I mean, there was internal things, of course. It says do not covet. That's internal. There's a lot of things that were internal, but the law was an external law. And, and as we've seen personally, uh, no outside law can, can change the heart. 
You know, you can do things outwardly, you can do actions to a certain point, but it can't change the heart and, and have the, the uh, proficiency that if we could put the penal code into our hearts <laughs> and then the penal code uh, gave us, could give us the power to obey that penal code, then that would be so much superior than having an external penal code that we have in our culture today. And so he's saying this old covenant, that was, that was an external law that was given for that. And it had its place. It had its purpose. But it could never, ever be superior to a, a law that comes inside of us and, and, and make us holy from the inside out. That's why legalism doesn't work. Man-made rules for holiness usually deal with external rules that man makes up. And man is so happy to connect the dots for people. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't. I'm talking about beyond what scripture says. And they micromanage it to the nth degree. You can't do all these outward things and so forth because they're trying to make you holy. You can't be made holy from the outside in. You can only be made holy from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. You know, convicting you of sin, having, bringing forth his word that you've already planted in your heart, bringing that out and bringing that to your remembrance, giving you the motivation, giving you the heart to want to please God, giving you the power to live a supernatural life. The old covenant could never deliver on that. The old covenant could never get that done. But now we're told in Romans chapter 8 verse 2, we're talking about a new law. God's revealed a new law that's at work, the law of the Spirit. And he talks about, if by the Spirit I die to these things, then I'll have victory. And then in Galatians we're told, if we, if, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the lusts of the flesh. He doesn't do it the, the other way around. You know, we don't, you have to have to start with the Spirit, and then he changes the outward and the inward. And, and so the law of Moses could never do that. Just like we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Spirit transforms us from glory to glory. Interesting that he's talking about the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3 in the context of the Old and New Covenant. And here he's talking about the significance of the the Holy Spirit related to the, the Old and New Covenant. The Holy Spirit's the key. He's the one that gives us the capacity to obey. And that is that is a ministry that happens inside of us. He he works inside of us. You know, I could be in Blockbuster. I know they're going out of business, and it's hard to find one these days sometimes. But you go into a video store, and someday we'll have to tell our youth what that was like because they'll have no idea what we're talking about with the video store. And you go into a video store, and you're looking at these different covers, and most of those you can't even look at. Just, just the surface level, you can't look at them. But you don't need to be taking around some kind of uh, list of rules. Okay, my pastor said I can't have this and I can't look at that and I can't look at that and I can't look at that and so forth. You don't need that. You don't need an outward set of man-made rules. The Spirit says, no, that's not for you. But so-and-so says they watch that. That's not for you. But I used to watch those kind of things later or earlier. You know, remember that? God, that's not for you. He's so specific. He speaks to us and said, that grieves me. That doesn't please me at all. I mean, he does so much more than any external law could ever do because he he customizes it. How, how, How many of us know here how well God can customize conviction uniquely for us? And he says it so perfectly where there's no wiggle room. 
There's no getting around anything, no seeing a little exception in, in, in something or finding an escape clause. He closes every one of those little things. There's no, there's no, room, there's no room for escape. And he, and he says, but I love you and I'm your father and I want you to be able to be like me. Because I am holy, I want you to be holy. And I'm going to do it through the Spirit, not you trying harder by external, uh, uh, an external law or man-made rules. And this would be so significant for the Jew. They couldn't carry around. We carry around with Bibles all the time. But they couldn't carry around. The, they didn't carry Bibles. They could only go into synagogue and hear the law, the law read. They couldn't take it. So this is even further removed for them because that, you know, they, they could not even imagine taking the, God's word around with them. But now the, whole, the Holy Spirit comes inside their life and he brings forth those things that they need to know and, 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 and think about because he brings those things to our remembrance. So that's one of the benefits of the new covenant in eternal law. Secondly, in verse 11, he gives us the second benefit. And, and what it is, is it's the universal firsthand knowledge of the Lord. He says in verse 11, None of them shall teach his neighbor... And none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. That's, that's the beauty. He wants everybody to have a, a firsthand knowledge of him. As it's been said, God doesn't have grandkids. Either you know him as a son or daughter, or you don't know him. He doesn't want a distant a long-distance relationship. Those aren't healthy even in our, <laughs> our world. You know, long-distance relationships don't work out very well. He doesn't want a long-distance relationship with anybody. He died to, make, to give us access and have that intimacy with him. And he's promising through this new covenant, something that the old covenant could not do, that I'm going to provide a universal first-hand knowledge where people can engage me and know me, and they're not going to just hear about me. God doesn't want you just to hear about him. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, he doesn't want you just to know about him. There's a lot of people who think they're on their way to heaven because they know about God. They believe in God. They're religious. They don't know him, though. Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. He, we have to have a personal, intimate, one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. He knew that couldn't happen like the, new, like the new covenant can make happen with the Old Testament. And so that's been God's heart all along. Know the Lord. And that just shows his heart of how close he wants to be with us. He wants to be very close. And often with all of us, there are times where he's beckoning us to spend more time with him. He wants us to have more of a personal relationship. But we try to keep him at a healthy distance. There's no such thing with God. The more distance we have between him and us, the more unhealthy it is. The third benefit of the new covenant, and there are many more, of course, but that we see here is the complete removal of sin. He says in verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This means a lot. I mean, think about the times where you've sinned against somebody, and you've asked for forgiveness. You confess that. You ask for forgiveness. They've forgiven you, and then they never bring it up again. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, they never bring it up. When they could, when there were times where they, were, they had every opportunity to rub your nose in something that they supposedly forgave you of and bring it up and reference it, and they didn't. And they never do ever again. That's a valuable friend. That's a valuable relationship. 
But what could mean more to us in a relationship than, than God in that relationship, having him not remember anymore or bring these things up? Aren't you glad he doesn't bring those things up? You've never had, and nor have I, ever had the Lord say, hey, 10 years ago, you sinned and did this. He's never done that. He's never, ever referenced our past sins to us because he said, I will remember them no more. He's not going to bring them up. It doesn't, it doesn't come into the, our current equation. He doesn't work through that. And, and, and so it's a beautiful expression of God's heart, but it comes through accepting and appropriating the new covenant. And then he says in verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. By virtue of the fact that he uses the word new, the, the writer is saying that automatically means that the old is obsolete. And the word new there is an interesting word. It's not just new like we think, like something uh, brand new that no one's ever seen. It's more of a improved, like new and improved. You know, it's, a, it's, it's something that is better. It's, it really has better at the essence of it. It's saying it's, it's, it's superior in every way, and it's made the first obsolete. And then he says, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to pass away. Very interesting. It's prophetic because it's about to pass away <laughs> in their lives. I mean, that temple's about to be destroyed. And just like Jesus prophesied, not one stone would be left on another, that was three or four years from this point. So I don't know if God had given the writer that, that knowledge and, and known specifically, but he wrote it by the Spirit, and obviously the Spirit knew, but he's saying it's ready to, to, to vanish away. Now, there, like I had mentioned, since the cross, there were 15, I believe, 15 high priests up to this point. And they were all illegitimate because when that temple uh, veil was rent, that communicated total access. You don't have to go through any other mediator from now on. You just go, to, go through Jesus. And, and so, but it took a while for God to finally put an end to that. They wouldn't put an end to it, so he put an end to it and allowed them to be uh, um, conquered by the Romans. Now, as I close, or at least begin to close, you know, it's just, you know, I'm starting my descent. Uh, I, I want to encourage you in a couple truths. <clears throat> and the first truth is that sometimes as believers, we can, we understand that we're in the New Testament. I mean, the New Covenant. We're under the New Covenant there. But we don't always treat the New Covenant like it's the New Covenant. We kind of sometimes can treat the New Covenant like the old one. Also, I want to encourage you that God has promised the New Covenant in the context of suffering. So I want to deal with the first one here. God wants us to treat the New Testament, the New Covenant that we're in, uh, in, the, in an appropriate way, not treat it like the old one. What do I mean? I mean we need to remember the I wills, the six I wills that we saw. That's the one, if you can encapsulate the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant, it's, it's, it's God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Because the old covenant again was, if this, then that. It's almost like a, you know, a math equation. If you do this, then that. If you don't do this, then, then this. It was very conditional. But the new covenant here, he's saying something entirely different. He's saying that I'm doing it. I will. I will. I will. I will do all of it. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across as he's unveiling 
the new covenant to the disciples. He's talking about the fact that it's God that is doing all of this. And it's based on God's righteousness and not our own righteousness. The work that he wants to do, and he wants us very fruitful. He wants us very busy about his business. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we've been, in, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. That he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he wants us very zealous for good works. We're told that over and over in the New Testament. But we, we do that by allowing him to bear fruit through our lives. We don't do it by, in our own strength, in our own power. That's self-dependence. In John 15, 5, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he talks about abiding and making our home or remaining or living and existing in him and letting him live his life through our lives. But sometimes we can do this goofy thing because we were involved, in, we weren't maybe uh, in Judaism at that some point in our past but we were maybe in a religious environment where the focus was on us we were it was communicated to us that we're the initiators and God's the responder in our relationship with him instead of how the New Testament teaches that he's the initiator and we respond as a life you know from you know with a life of worship to him like first John tells us that we love him because he first loved us we don't live our lives trying to get him to respond and trying to get him to love us more, or accept us more based on what we do or don't do. That's the old covenant. That's treating the new covenant like it's the old covenant. I will, I will, I will, I will do it. And so I want to encourage you today, if you're relating to God based on what you do, you're missing out on so much of what God has in the new covenant. Because in the new covenant, he tells us, I do the work. It's based on my righteousness. It's based on my love. I love you not because you are lovable. I love you because I am love. I use you because I've called you. I've not, I'm not using you because you're great. I'm using you because I've called you. And I equip the called. I don't call the equipped. And so he's saying, I want to do the work through your life. It's by my grace. It's by my power that I do anything through your life. Quit treating the new covenant as if you're in the old covenant. It's not... You do this, and then he does this. And of course, there is responsibility. There's a stewardship. There's you know, responsibility. He gives us responsibilities. But he works those things through our abiding in him. And then he is glorified. Remember that fruit is always for other people's enjoyment. It's not supremely for, our, for our, you know, the tree's enjoyment. The tree doesn't enjoy the fruit. People from without come up to the tree, take the fruit, and they enjoy it. The fruit of the Spirit is for other people to enjoy. It's not supremely for us to enjoy, even though we do have an abundant life from that and we enjoy you know, what God's doing in and through our lives. It's supremely for other people to enjoy. So it's based on his faithfulness for other people to enjoy versus based on things that we do to have an earthly inheritance you know, like the Jews or to have some kind of standing or approval from God. Second, the context in which he promised the new covenant was a context of suffering. The context of when Jeremiah prophesied those verses that we read is the context of Israel, the southern kingdom specifically, getting ready to be conquered by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is prophesying to them for 40 years. We're told he's the weeping prophet. We refer to him as the weeping prophet. Didn't have, any, didn't have one recorded convert. Was faithful all the way to the end. And he prophesied all of these things about the new covenant right before they get conquered by the Babylonians. And what did the Babylonians do? They destroyed the temple. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Sounds like the Jew these Jewish Christians here are about to have their temple destroyed. 
So right in their darkest hour, God comes in, doesn't have to do it this time. He could have done it when they're already in Babylon. He does it at this time and he tells them in the, right in the, around the, the time where they get conquered, he says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to give you a new covenant. And that covenant's not going to be like what you've experienced. He's giving them hope in them, even in the midst of their failure, even in the midst of them falling short. He gives them great grace by giving them a word from him that talks about that, that God's not done with them. God's not done with you today. The second example is in 1 Corinthians 11, where Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, he says, uh, and he says um, Take a, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's the night of his betrayal. That's just like in, in, in Israel there, right before the Babylonians came and conquered, God gave them hope. He, gave, he spoke in the midst of their difficulty and trial and failure. He gave them hope and a word that they needed to hear about their future. Here, the night of his betrayal, Jesus is doing the same thing. And he's ironically talking about the same thing, the new covenant. And he's about to be betrayed. They're all going to be scattered. Right in the context of that, he speaks hope and he speaks encouragement about the new covenant. And he says, I'm sealing this new covenant. The, the, can you imagine the disciples that were tracking with what Jeremiah said? Hear him say that word, new covenant. This is it? This is what Jeremiah was talking about? This is when you're starting the new covenant that, that he prophesied about all those years ago? This is the time. He's starting something brand new with them. He's starting a new covenant and he's sealing it in his blood. And why is that an encouragement to me? Because it shows me his heart. It shows me that when people are struggling and when they're even in the midst of their great failure, he comes in with a perfect word for them to encourage them and say, this, this failure is not what's going to be written above your lives forever. I, my grace is greater than all of your sin and failure. And I'm going to give you hope. And in the midst of, right before the disciples are going to fail miserably, and they're going to go every which way, you know, and Peter's going to deny the Lord and all of that. He's, right before that, he says, the new covenant is sealed by my blood. And then he says at the end of the, at verse 26, he says, and do this to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Well, he can't come if he's still dead in the grave. So he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be captured, so to speak. He's going to offer himself, of course. But he's going to die on the cross. He's going to raise from the dead and so forth. They didn't know anything about that in the, while it was happening. They didn't know that he was going to raise, be raised from the dead. They didn't believe that yet. But here in that context, he says, proclaim this till he comes. That presupposes that He's, he's going to rise from the dead because you can't come later on and have a second coming if you're still dead in that grave. He's speaking encouragement in the context of suffering. And if you're here today and you're not relating to God in the right way, and you're treating the new covenant like it's the old covenant, be encouraged. It's not based on you. It's based on him. It's based on his faithfulness. And maybe this is a word of encouragement in the context of your suffering. And God has arranged this for you to hear it this morning. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But God's heart towards you is for you to be encouraged to not be drowning in the, in the circumstances that you find yourself in. His, his faithfulness is going to have the last say in your life because you're in the new covenant and there's great hope in it. So be encouraged today, no matter what you're facing. We're in a better covenant. 
We have a better mediator. We have a better minister. He's in a better sanctuary. He's making better offerings. And, he's, and those offerings are prayers for us. That should encourage us. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your encouragement. We thank you for the depth of your holy word, Lord. Encourage your people today. Thank you for speaking that word in the context of incredible, incredible suffering and failure. Lord, we hate failing you. We're aware of our failures. Thank you that your grace is greater than all of it. Thank you that you're patient and you're merciful. Encourage us, Lord. Encourage us in, in how faithful you are and how our relationship with you is so anchored in who you are and not in how we fail. Lift the heads of your people this morning, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name.